0: One Timothy five Verse one to chapter six verse two. So it's a long reading, so don't need to stand. So from verse one of chapter five. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, a younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well, so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith, and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than sixty years of age, having been the wife of one husband, And having a reputation for good works, if she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work. But refused to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their form of faith." Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going from house to house, Not only, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them Let the church not be burdened, so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, have nothing, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure." No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. The sins of some people are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden." And errant word. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word that is true, that divides between soul and spirit and joints and marrow, and that brings life um, and light to dead and dark hearts and strengthens and builds up those of us in Christ. So Lord, we pray now that you would bless the preaching of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, it's just uh, another day in South Africa when you're minding your own business, uh, you're driving on the freeway, you're abiding by the speed limit, and magically all of a sudden right behind you, right on your tail, is a host of of luxury cars uh, in black, uh, speeding, flashing their blue lights, hooting, making obscene signs at you, bullying you out of your lane. So that some probably minor government official can, can go about his business and go for lunch at a five-star hotel or something like that. Um, and what, what's particularly grating about when we experience things like that is that these are the people who uh, are um, using our tax money. Where our tax money is going in order to serve the South African public. And um, it's frustrating when supposedly uh, public servants act in an attitude of entitlement and and arrogance with with very little regard for the people that they are serving. So in a way, something similar is happening in in this morning's passage here. Um, What we've been seeing as we've been going along our journey in Timothy... And um, I would encourage you, just uh, as a footnote, you, you know, we, we preach expository sermons here, so there's no surprises of what is going to be preached next week. You just carry on reading the, the, the next passage. Read ahead um, for, for some preparation. It would be helpful. Um, so what we've been seeing in the, as we've been going through 1 Timothy is that one of the problems that Timothy's been facing as he's been pastoring this church in Ephesus is that they've been uh, having problems with false teachers. And this false teaching was having an impact on how people in the church were treating each other. And that's what false teaching typically does. It causes all sorts of confusion and causes people to rub against each other. And so the church was battling with groups of people that were lacking in humility toward one another and not serving each other as they ought to do. That's what, as Christians, we're all about. We, we called to serve. And so Paul picks out three groups of people in the church in particular, and he zooms in on each one. He first looks at the widows, then he looks at the elders, and he looks at slaves. And so what we're going to see as we go through the text, and each one of those... Um, Groups of people is that because we are in Christ, we are to serve each other sacrificially just as Christ serves the church. So let's get straight into it. And let's first look at these first two introductory verses again, um, which say, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So we've got some general instructions here on church relationships that, that really guide the rest of the text. And so there's a particular instruction to Timothy as a young pastor. We saw that last week you know, um, chapter 4. Paul said, "Somebody don't let people look down on you because you're young. Um, so it's obviously applicable to, to Timothy as a young pastor, but it's, it's also um, relevant to, to all of us in the church. Um, but particularly if you are young, like Timothy, and in a position of, of, of leadership, what this text is saying is that don't treat your elders harshly, those who are elders meaning generally elder people, not the, the office of elder, but instead be respectful to them. Um, don't pull rank because you know, you, you, you're in a position of, of leadership. And in a similar way, don't look down on people who are younger than I mean, you. Treat them as, as brothers in the faith. Treat uh, elder women as, as mothers, um, younger women as, as sisters, and especially keeping those relationships pure. So, it's, in essence, it's describing servant leadership in, in the church. Um, avoid abusing authority, avoid becoming a, a, a tyrant and instead serve people with respect and, 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 and purity. And, and this is really how we are to, to guide our relationships with, within the church as brothers and sisters um, amongst one another, but also how leadership is to conduct itself. We, um, we, are, not to be, we are not to lead in ways that are tyrannical. Um, and abuse leadership or abuse a, a position um, in in leadership but instead serve one another. Um, so we're going to see how this principle of, of service then um, is uh, applied to each of these three groups in the church. And the first group that Paul talks about is the widows. So... Th- We know from looking at the rest of the New Testament that the church has a special responsibility to care for its poor members, and especially the widows. And we see this first in Acts chapter 6. That's where the deacons were appointed in the church um, primarily to care for the physical needs of widows in order to then uh, free up the apostles and and the elders to to focus on, on the ministry of the word. So why is it that the widows are single archer? What is it about widows that um, we need to be mindful of? Well, most widows, and this is especially true in the ancient world, um, it's also true today, but most widows are condemned to a life of poverty or will be struggling financially simply because they don't have their husbands anymore. A husband typically is the breadwinner, and even if they've got a job, they're not going to be earning the, um, you know, the, the combined salary that they, that they were before. Um, so, the, the widows have it tough financially. It's hard to earn a living for one person. And so, it's for this reason that verse 3 tells us that the church should honor widows who are truly widows. So we call the a church to, to serve widows and, and treat them well. And um, as we're going to see where it's applicable, provide even for their physical needs. So Paul then cautions Timothy to discern who are truly widows and who are not. So in verse 4 it says, but if a widow has children or grandchildren... Let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So there's some truth to the saying that charity begins at home. And if there are widows who have extended family, if they've got children and and grandchildren, what is very clear here is that the church it's not the church's responsibility to look after those widows. It's, it's their family's responsibility. And in fact, to, to care for your own household, especially by looking after your parents in, in old age and not abandoning them, this is a deep expression of, of godliness. Because the rationale that's used in the text is that, well, since they looked after you, okay, they brought you up and they had you in their household, they fed you, yeah, they washed the dishes, etc., etc. Now that they're old, well, it's time for you to return the favor. Okay? It's time for you to, 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 to show some sacrificial love to them. And this is pleasing in the sight of God. And it's what the fifth commandment essentially calls us to do, that we would honor um, our fathers and mothers, that it may go well with us in the land. Exodus 20 verse 12. And verse 8 says that to not look after your family, especially members of your own household, is an expression actually of a denial of the faith. And that's strong words. So it's it's a it's a profoundly unchristian thing to not provide for your own family, and it then the text carries on and says someone who does this is worse than an unbeliever. And so you see here, here's an example of how good belief or, or good doctrine is expressed then in in good practice, because we and the. The true It's also true vice versa, okay? Bad belief, bad doctrine then is usually expressed in, in bad practice because we, we tend to act out what we truly believe and especially so in the light of how you treat your family here. So who then is to be considered a true widow that the church ought to, to help out financially or with physical things? Well, verse 5 gives us the criteria. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers day and night. So those who we should really be helping out are those who have no one else, who are literally all alone, without any family. But who are believers, who show themselves to be trusting in the Lord through prayer. And then later on in verse 9, adds that they need to be at least 60 years old. They shouldn't have been in a polygamous marriage uh, before. They should have a, a good reputation and living a godly life of integrity, being faithful and bringing up their children, being hospitable and having served the church faithfully. Then the text also tells us that the church then is not bound to care for widows younger than 60 and it gives a whole quite a spiel, which I'm not going to go into. You can you can read it there. The heart of what that those verses are saying is that, a younger widows are encouraged to get remarried. Verses eleven to to fourteen, um, and it it appears that there was probably some kind of abuse in the system there. That there were these young widows who were in expecting, or they were thought they were entitled to to getting support from the church, and so. Paul just brings some clarification in here, um, and so, yeah, the church is not bound to to care for for young widows, nor is the church bound to care for widows who are unbelievers, who are not members of the church. You see that in in verse verse six, and this gives us a, a glimpse of really the the church's scope of responsibility for the poor in general, and. In, in our circles, in the Presbyterian church, it's the diaconate or the deacons of the church who, who've got a special task to, to, to do this. Um, we are not called to, to help every single poor person on the planet, actually. That, the Bible doesn't, doesn't give us that mandate um, because it's an overwhelming task. But what we are called to do is look after our own poor. And serve the genuinely poor and the needy within our church. And yeah, that, that is the main task of, of the deacons. And um, any good church is going to do that. So that brings us to, to our second point um, regarding the elders. So from verse 17. The elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor especially those who labor in teaching and preaching. So we see here um, that the elders, and this is uh, our favorite Greek word in the New Testament, presbyteros, as where we get the word presbyterian from, um, that they are to rule, those who rule well, those who do a good job at what they're called to do, are worthy of double honor, especially those who preach and teach. So this verse is, is evidence for the existence of two kinds of elders. Okay, we believe that there's, there's one office of elder with, with different orders. Now, all elders are called to the job of the elders to, to rule, to, to lead the church, to pastor the people, to be involved with church, in church discipline if, if it's necessary, to, and, and to pray for the church. But some, in addition to, to this, are called to focus on preaching and teaching, or to, to labor in the ministry of the word. And so in the Presbyterian world, we see this verse as justification for having two types of elders. Um, firstly, a ruling elder, ruling elders, and teaching elders. Both have the same authority but, but different responsibilities. So let's look at the, firstly the teaching elder. Okay, also You can also call it the teaching elder the minister or, or the pastor. Okay, I'm ordained as the teaching elder of, of this congregation. And the teaching elder typically has had a seminary, a formal theological education, a seminary education. Um, the teaching elder is ordained by the presbytery. That's the, the regional church, representatives of elders from, from other churches in, in, in the region. And so um, because of that, I'm I'm not a member of this church. I'm a member of the presbytery, um, which uh, there's good implications for that, which I'm not going to go into now. So the focus of the teaching elder is the ministry of the word and and sacrament, teaching and preaching, doing the Lord's Supper and baptism. Obviously, then along with the relevant leadership tasks, the pastoral work and prayer. The ruling elders, on the other hand, are not ordained by the presbytery. They are ordained by the elders of the local church, what we call the session. They're members of the, the local church. And the focus of the ruling elders is, is ruling the, the church through discipline, pastoral work, perhaps some occasional teaching, but not in the administration of the sacraments. That, that task is, is for the teaching elder alone. So verse 18 continues, for the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain and the laborer deserves his wages. So you see, these two verses go together here because they explain each other. So those elders who serve well, especially those who teach and preach, as we saw in verse 17, uh, um, are worthy of, of, of double honor. And here in verse 18, we see what is meant by, by double honor. It's talking about financial remuneration. It's talking about being paid decently. And so Paul quotes two texts from the law of Moses. Firstly, Deuteronomy 25 verse 4, which is don't muzzle an ox. And then Leviticus is like loosely based on Leviticus 19.13, a laborer deserves his wages. So why is he saying this? What's the point of him... Um, you know, making these statements and quoting these Old Testament passages. Well, he's saying, pay pay your pastor decently. It's a godly thing to do. The church shouldn't let the pastor be stressed about money. Instead, they should pay him enough that he can get on with the job and preach and teach well without worrying about making ends meet. And this is in contrast to two extremes that we find in the church world today. Either a poverty mindset, which is, nah, you must keep that pastor poor, so he always relies on the Lord, and you must kind of live as a, yeah, as, as a, as a church mouse, basically. Or, on the other hand, is the, which is probably more common in, in our context, is a prosperity gospel, which is, no, nah, the pastor lives like a rock star. Yeah, he's got his Lamborghini and his white shiny shoes and his couple of mansions in Amshlanga, while his congregation you know, don't live anywhere near the lifestyle that he lives. He comes to church in a helicopter, you know, you know what it's like. So the general rule of thumb is to pay your pastor according to the average of the community in which he lives. It's just a common sense thing, and that's reflected in, in kind of the heart of, of this text. So verse 19 continues, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now remember the context here. There were false teachers who were stirring up confusion in the church. And one of the ways they were doing this was that they were falsely accusing elders in the church. And when you bring false accusations against people, that can destroy reputations of people. It can make life misery for, for for innocent people. And so Paul here quotes again from the law of Moses at uh, Deuteronomy 19.15, which stipulates that two or three witnesses are needed in order to bring a charge against someone. And so that same rule from the law of Moses still applies in the church, and, and it's meant to prevent false accusations and, the damaging of, of reputation of, of an honorable elder, but then at the same time allowing for elders who really have sinned and really have abused their positions and you know, messed around to be held accountable for their actions. And they, that will come up if, they, if, it's, if those things are true, then there will be two or three witnesses who will be able to substantiate that. So the next two verses uh, give us a bit more detail on how this works out. So verses 20 and 21. As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So unlike the members of our cabinet and our government, elders are not exempted from accountability for for their actions just because of their position in in the church. If an elder in our church, and at the moment I'm the only elder, that's, that's got to change soon. But if any elder is guilty of misconduct, okay, we're not... Uh, by, the, um, by our position, um, untouchable. Okay? Unfortunately, there are a lot of churches where that is the case. There's the man of God, and whatever he says goes. And um, people can you know, report abuse charges, but, and, and they'll be swept under the carpet. That's an unbiblical thing to do. We are, are instructed here that if an elder is guilty of misconduct, and, there, and if there is evidence for two or more witnesses... He's got to be disciplined. And so verse twenty is talking about those who persist in sin. So obviously we all sinners. There's not a day go by where any of us doesn't sin, but we repentant sinners. Somebody who persists in sin, somebody who makes a practice of sinning, is committing high-handed sin. They are unrepentant. They are carrying on in a, a sinful lifestyle that is. Um, obviously contrary to the word of God. And um, in spite of being perhaps pastored through the issue privately, um, they still remain stiff-necked about it. That's the people who we're talking about here, not your, I oh, no, uh, um, you know, I told a lie or whatever. And that's, a, that's a sin <laughs> itself. But when we repentant, it's a very different thing to somebody who is perhaps... Uh, uh, in in, in hard hearted high handed sin, those folks are to be disciplined and are to be ultimately last stage of the process to be rebuked in front of the church now you may be thinking that 's uh, you know that 's harsh stuff um, and especially in our individualistic culture we we tend to shy away from from wanting to be involved in, in practices like that, you're, you, know, you see you know, your problem, you must keep it private, you know, don't, bring, um, you know, don't make it a public issue. But the reality is that as a church, we are a covenant community. And so when we, a member sins grievously, it may have been done in private, but actually it affects us all. Yeah, our sin doesn't just affect ourselves and we are uh, that's the we can delude ourselves into thinking that our sin is just a private thing but that's the nature of sin we lose perspective on just how it messes up so many other things whether it's through broken relationships trust etc cetera, etc cetera. so it is well one of the I mean um, John Calvin one of yeah you know, he Taught on taught the three marks of the true church. The first mark is the, the faithful preaching of the word. The second mark is the faithful administration of the sacraments. And the third mark is the faithful administration of church discipline. So true churches are going to discipline their members. And the point of this, it's not just, oh, they're being harsh and judgmental and all that. Oh, Ultimately, church discipline is meant to be redemptive. Okay, well, the goal of church discipline is to bring people to repentance and a realization of just how grave the their sin is. It's meant to be a wake-up call. Okay, that the the, the act of bringing someone up to the front and having to fess up to the sins is like throwing some ice cold water over them, saying, Guys, do you realize just what you have done because sin blinds us, so in verse twenty it also gives us another reason for church discipline, okay that it definitely is for the restoration ultimately of the the sinner, but it 's also meant for all of us. the reason given is that the rest of the church may stand in fear, okay that we too would realize the seriousness of sin and and not make light of it. That's a a motivation for us to to godliness and obedience according to God's word and to live in a healthy fear before the Lord. In verse 21, we see that it's it's all qualified that the same standards, they need to be applied to all. We've got to be impartial. How? The uh, church discipline is is conducted. It's not correct that some are called out for their their sins, but then other sins are are, are winked away. Um, and there's a warning too in verse 22 that we are not to take part in the sins of others. And there's a, a temptation, especially for church leaders, if they're involved in a, disciplining a member who is in sin. There's a temptation that that person in sin is going to want to draw you into their sin as well. And there's a reason for that. Is that if you too are tarnished by sin, where does that leave you? Well, it doesn't give you a leg to stand on, to, to carry on with the, the discipline. So the encouragement here is that we are to be on guard against temptation and evil and to keep ourselves pure. Verse twenty-two carries on and says, "Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands." And the laying on of hands, as we've seen before in, in one Timothy, it's a reference to ordination of, of elders. And you saw it in one Timothy four fourteen, also in, in two Timothy one verse six. And so the point here is that we are to not rush into ordaining elders. We to ensure that there's a period of testing for all elder candidates so that they can prove themselves in consistently living a godly life, uh, being above reproach, and showing that their doctrine is indeed sound. Because a church, a healthy church, needs elders of proven integrity in order to faithfully serve the church. If you've got elders who are still stumbling around in in high-handed sin, it's going to affect the health of, of the church and not in a good way. So in verse 24, it adds that the sins of some are obvious while others' sins take time to manifest. So it's, again, reinforcing this importance of, of a testing period for, for elder candidates because, you know, if you've been in the church long enough, you'll know that ultimately the, the truth always pops out. Okay? You, you can't hide secrets forever. The, the Lord has a way. Of exposing hidden sin in his own time, and that brings us to to the last verse in this section, verse twenty-three. No longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and frequent ailments. Now, it, it seems kind of random here. You talking about elders and you know widows, and then there's this throwaway verse about you know don't just drink water, drink drink some wine too. So what is it, what's going on? Well, I mean, remember the context. When in Dutch, go back to the context. Context of the false teachers who we saw last week were of the, um, they were teaching a form of ascetism or this a teaching of that you ought to deny the, yourself the pleasures of this world, even good pleasures from God. And the one, yeah, the particular ones last week were marriage and the eating of, of, of meat. Okay. Um, so included in that um, is also in the ascetic uh, teaching is a denial of alcohol as well. So it, it seems like Timothy had been influenced by this teaching in some way because Paul is assuming that all this guy is drinking is water and and not wine. So Paul instructs him in, in Christian liberty, saying it's it's okay to drink. A bit of wine. Obviously, this is a conscience issue. The the, the church, you know, the, the Bible forbids drunkenness. It's not a good thing, it's a sin. Um, but it, it doesn't bind our conscience either way. If you want to not drink alcohol as a Christian for your own reasons, that's perfectly legitimate. And Christians need to respect that. On the other hand, um, if you uh, drink a bit of alcohol in moderation and not leading to drunkenness, that's also legitimate. It's a part of Christian liberty, um, which we see here. Um, So Paul saying it's okay to drink a bit of wine, even if it's just for for medicinal reasons. Um, And perhaps there's even scriptural warrant to say that a bit of wine is is good for your health, but maybe um, let's not stretch the meaning too far, but you get the picture. And let's bring us to our last point, our slaves. Verses 1 and 2. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So this third group of people in the church that Paul addresses are slaves or bond servants. So see us understand this is when we think of slavery, we tend to think of the transatlantic slave trade. The slavery of the Greco-Roman world was not like that. Slaves were more what we would see as, as our maids and our, our, our gardeners. Okay? They were generally treated quite well. Okay, although obviously they weren 't paid that 's what a slave is,, okay? but they were generally a part of the household they lived in yeah, in their quarters in the house they were they were pretty generally cared for obviously they were you know slaves that were abused by their their masters. but the issue here is that there are some slaves who are part of the church they're believers, and they're acting inappropriately toward their masters who also happen to be christians and so the slaves were thinking, well. Because these guys are fellow believers, well, it's an excuse for me to, to be lazy in my work and not to, to uh, show the boss the respect that he deserves and maybe a bit of over-familiarity with the, with the boss. So essentially, they're taking advantage of their masters because of their faith. They weren't serving them as they were, were, were called to do. So Paul rebukes the slaves. He's saying, "No, this guys, this is not at all appropriate." And instead, it's precisely because you are believers that means we are called to a high work ethic. We're to serve our masters even better, and that has absolutely implications for us today. Um, we are to glorify the Lord in our labour. From Our weekly labor, Monday to Friday, or whatever it is, that we to to work hard, that we to serve and please our earthly masters, and this is a good thing. It's 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 virtuous for a Christian to work hard. Um, It glorifies the Lord. It it pleases the Lord. So let's wrap this all up. Now, if we honest with ourselves. We're all guilty at some point of desiring to, to be served rather than to serve. It's part of a sinful nature in our hearts, this entitlement attitude of possibly even disrespecting people around us. It's a manifestation of our pride, of our arrogance, of um, our self-righteousness. The thing is, before our holy God, all sin deserves to be judged. And on our own, we all found to be wanting. And we all, outside of Christ, deserve to face God's just wrath for all eternity. But God hasn't left us to this fate. Thankfully because he sent his son Jesus Christ of whom Matthew 20:28 20, says came not to be served but to serve so in what way did Jesus come to serve us well, Isaiah 53 describes Jesus as the servant of the Lord who is verse 4 born our griefs and carried our sorrows who was, in verse 5, wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So brothers and sisters, the Son of Man came to serve us by paying the debt that we owe for for our sins, that none of us could actually pay. And on the cross, Jesus himself took upon himself our our griefs, our sorrows, all our sins, our transgressions, our pride, our vanity, our self-righteousness, every vile sin, and endured the punishment for them that was meant for us. And instead of wrath and punishment in Christ, God grants us what we don't deserve. And that is peace, healing, forgiveness of sins, and salvation. So brothers and sisters, repent and trust in the true servant of the Lord, the Son of Man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave his life as a ransom for sinners like you and me, he laid his, down his life on the cross. He served us to the uttermost so that guilty sinners may walk free, forgiven, cleansed, reconciled to our Father, and transformed by his Spirit, and who helps us serve each other sacrificially for his glory. Amen.